beginning at verse 1. We then who are strong ought to bear with the scruples of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good leading to edification. For even if Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we, through the patience and comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope. Now may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward one another, according to Christ Jesus, that you may, with one mind and one mouth, glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, receive one another, just as Christ also received us to the glory of God. Amen. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that you, by your Spirit, would enlighten our minds and our hearts with your Holy Word, that we would apply carefully what is taught here, and that Christ Jesus would be exalted. We pray in his name. Amen. You may be seated. Perhaps you've heard of that phrase, a work in progress. That is usually a business phrase. It is a production term, and it refers to a product that is not yet finished. It could refer to pulp wood that has not yet been made into paper. And so that wood is a work in progress. It could refer to a project of some sort. And so that project is in process. And yes, sometimes figuratively, we refer to ourselves or other people as a work in progress. I can recall in the early 2000s when I was at seminary, uh, one of my classmates, uh, his wife worked at the seminary, and it was raining. This was in South Carolina, and uh, it was raining a lot for like two weeks. And this couple that I'm referring to, they lived out west where it was very dry. They didn't see a lot of rain. And so as one professor entered, the professor I had that morning, as he entered, he asked how she was doing, this student's wife, and she said, oh, okay, but uh, all this rain, you know. And I guess the professor kept that under his hat for a minute, and then he came to our class where he was going to teach us, and the husband of that young lady was in the class with me, and uh, he just let everybody know in front of the class that his wife was complaining about, about all the rain, to which that student quickly said with a grin, Dr. So-and-so, she's a work in progress. And I thought, wow, that was a quick comeback, and I, I really appreciated him and the spirit of, of what he said there. And so, yes, Christians are works in progress, right? Paul has already said this in Romans chapter 8, and the finished product, the goal of the Christian is to be like Jesus Christ. In Romans eight twenty nine, he says that we are being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. That means we will look like Jesus Christ, not necessarily in physical appearance, but in our conduct, in our faith, in our attitude, in our character. And so God causes all things to work together for our good. And our good in that context is to mold us, to shape us, to be more like Jesus. And so, yes, we are works in progress. We've been justified. 
Those of us who are Christians, we put our faith in the Son of God. We've repented of our sins, continue to do so. And so we've been justified. We've been forgiven fully of all of our sins. But also, we are being sanctified. We're being made holy, more like Christ. And so then, if we, who are Christians, are all being sanctified, if we are all works in progress, the chances of us all being at the same point in that progress is slim to none, right? We come to faith at different times. Some have been a Christian maybe for a few months, maybe for a few decades. And maybe those who have been Christian for a few months are farther along in their faith than those who have been a Christian for a decade or two. And so what happens then is that some Christians are stronger in their faith than others. Some Christians are weaker in their faith than other Christians. And so we have Romans chapter 14, and we began to look at that some time ago. In Romans 14 and verse 1, Paul gives instruction to those Christians there at Rome because of some things going on. He says, receive one another who is weak in the faith, but not to disputes over doubtful things. And so he talks about how the strong are to receive those who are weaker in their faith. You know, the weaker in their faith in this context, they were those who they wanted to observe all of these different days of the year. They would not drink wine. They would not eat meat or at least certain types of meat. But then there were those who were stronger. They saw every day as the same except for the Lord's Day. They would eat meat, they would drink wine. And so we looked at that in Paul's instruction there. Well, in chapter 15 and verse 1, we can see that Paul was among those who were strong. And uh, by the way, when it comes to the weak in the context, it could be one of two groups. It could be the Jews or the Gentiles. They both were at that church in Rome, Jewish Christians, Gentile Christians, and the Jews came out of that ceremonial system where they presented all their sacrifices to the Lord according to His work. Jesus came, is the fulfillment of those ceremonial sacrifices and so forth. And so they were to no longer offer them. And yet they had all these days associated with the ceremonial law, the various Sabbath days and festivals and feasts and all of that. They weren't allowed to eat certain foods. And so maybe the weaker Christians were those Jewish people who had put their faith in Jesus, but they still, it was hard to give up some of those customs. They knew that Jesus is the fulfillment, but their parents, their grandparents, their great, 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 great grandparents, they all practiced these things. And so it was hard for a season to give that up. And no doubt they would, they would need to do that eventually. Or perhaps Paul here is referring to those Gentiles who bring various customs into the congregation. They didn't eat, maybe they were vegan, I don't know. Or maybe they had some other kind of meat they didn't eat. Or they just didn't drink wine because of the past that they had it was, that was associated with that. Or it could be that the meat that Paul's talking about was sacrificed to idols. The wine was sacrificed to idols. And Paul, as he says in 1 Corinthians, meat is meat. And uh, there's only one living and true God. And so if it were offered to idols, the wine or the meat, Paul would in good conscience be able to partake of both. But not all Christians could. 
And so there would be this struggle because one Christian would see, okay, you're eating that meat, you're drinking that wine, you're not observing that day. What's wrong with that person? Are they Christian? Or the weak would say, come on, get over it, man. Don't you know Christ fulfilled these things? Or, you know, there's only one living and true God. Come on, just come over and here, just take a sip. Let's, let's have lunch. And so there's this thing called the conscience. And the conscience is a gift from God, but it needs training. And so Paul says at the end of verse, or the end of chapter 14, verse 23, he says, but he who doubts is condemned if he eats because he does not eat from faith. For whatever is not a faith is sin. And so, <clears throat> while the weak person has this conscience issue of wine and meat, in other words, he or she's not going to partake of them, um, if that person were to partake of them because the strong Christian was pressuring him or her to do so, and they did not do it in good faith, and trusting the Lord that it was okay, they were still thinking they were sinning. And even though it's okay for them to eat it or to drink the wine, for them to do so not in faith is sin. They are willing to disobey God. That's the point. So Paul addresses that, and he says it's not good to eat meat or drink wine or do anything by which your brother is made to stumble or becomes offended or is made weak. And so we've looked at that. And so there are all these things going on. And, and as we've said, this is a little bit different than 1 Corinthians 10, where Paul talks about foods offered to idols. Um, it's different than what Paul deals with in his letter to the Galatians, because it's obvious from this context the gospel is not at stake. It's not a sin issue, and it's not a Lord's Day issue. He's talking about these various practices and customs that certain Christians practice at this place and at this time, the time of his writing, those Christians there in Rome. And so the question then becomes, what, what does the church do? What do Christians do when there is a difference of opinion? And it's not sin, but there's a difference in opinion, uh, belief, and practice. Does the church divide? Do we separate from other Christians? As he says in chapter 14, do we destroy the work of God and another Christian? You see, that's the issue. And so we don't. And so then in chapter 15, you can see there he is continuing this conversation. Verse 1, we then who are strong ought to bear with the scruples of the weak and not to please ourselves. And so he's continuing the discussion. Then he presents Christ himself as an example to us in this situation. And then he undergirds that with proof from the Old Testament, Psalm 69. And then he shares his desired outcome in verses 5 and 6. And then in verse 7, we have this summary statement again. And so then as we think about that, we note that Paul says that the strong are to bear with the weak. So let's consider that this morning. First of all, we see here in verses 1 and 2, the obligation of the strong to bear with the weak. Look at verse 1. He says, we then who are strong ought to bear with the scruples of the weak. We ought. This is a strong word. It means we are indebted to. 
the weak. Not only we should, we must bear with the scruples, the weaknesses of the weak. That's what he says. And so it says we are to bear with them. Now, I was driving in traffic this week, and I was trying to bear with other drivers on the road, whether they drove too slowly or, you know, whatever. Sometimes we bear with other people. We, we bear, we grin and bear it, we say, and that's not what Paul was talking about here. I'm going to put up with that other brother or sister. That's not what he's saying. There's more to Christian unity than that. That's part of it, but it's not just that. I mean, people in the world can do that, right? So to bear here means really not to put up with, but to carry, to lift. As one has defined it, to help them along in their spiritual development. The strong are to bear with the weak. They are to help the weak along in their spiritual development. Right? Now, we have to note what Paul has said in Romans 12, too, as we think about doing this. Um, if you're weak and you don't know it, uh, you'll have to do this eventually. If you're strong and you know it, you're going to have to do this. So at some point, if you grow as a Christian, you're going to have to do this. Um, if you're in the church long enough, you will have to do this. Maybe you have. But in Romans 12, 2, Paul begins the application, really, in this letter. He says, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So we are to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. What is it that transforms our minds? It's the Word of God. As we've seen, the Word of God is, in that context, the will of God for our lives. So when it comes to our conscience, they can be wrong, as we see with the stronger and weaker Christian. So we have to reprogram. You know, it's like the old hard drives. I, don't, do they? I guess they still have hard drives in the computers. I don't know. Um, they do. Um, but you used to have to um, wipe them clean and reformat the hard drive, especially if you had a certain type of computer that got all these bugs all the time. So with our own minds, we, we reformat them, we erase them as it were, and we put God's thoughts in there, we put His words in there, so that we may prove what is the perfect and acceptable will of God. And so the weaker Christian must do this as well. And so what Paul is saying when he says, we who are strong ought to bear with the scruples of the weak, he's saying this, that until the weak come to a place where they can eat and drink in good conscience and see every day except the Lord's day as the other, the strong are to bear with them. They are to carry them. They are to lead them and help them. And so then he says there, we are not to please ourselves. You know, we might want to partake of the wine in front of the weaker brother or sister. We might want to eat the meat. We, we might want to do something that um, could cause our brother or sister to stumble. And that would be pleasing ourselves. And so what he's talking about here when he says pleasing ourselves, 
is keeping the peace in the church. But then in verse 2, he says, Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, leading to his edification. Let us please our neighbor. Now, does that mean we are to be pleasers of men? That we are to be men pleasers and seek the approval of men and everything and be enslaved to the approval of men? No. Paul talks about that in uh, his letter to the Galatians. Let me just read to you chapter 1 there. I think it's verse 10 where he says this. He says, For do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I still pleased men, then I would not be a bondservant of Christ. And so in that context, Paul says, if I was a pleaser of men, I would not be pleasing God. So it's one or the other in that context. Well, that's not what he's saying here. He's talking about keeping the peace and doing that which serves for the edification, verse 2, of the other Christian. Think about it. What is edification? What is an edifice? It's a structure. Edification is that process of building up another brother or sister in Christ. Not tearing them down. And so if we're going to do this as the weaker Christian, it will take faith. It will take faith. It will take trust in God. Why do I say that? Because you're going to have to trust God that He will work in that person. Paul in Philippians, you know, he talks about being convinced of God being at work in the Christians at Philippi. He says in chapter 1, verse 6, being confident of this very thing that He who has begun a good work and you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. You know, sometimes I think the stronger Christian might think he or she is at this alone. They forget about perhaps the work of the Holy Spirit, the promises of sanctification in the life of the child of God, the believer. Yes, the Lord does tell us to correct one another, to admonish one another, and to speak the word of God to one another. There are those times where we do that. But we have to trust that God will be at work in the lives of other Christians. It will take discernment if we're going to do this, if we're going to edify and and do what Paul says here. Discernment, why? Because we have to understand, is this a sin issue or is this a pleasure or preference issue? Um, Not all applications of of Scripture are cut and dry, right? I mean, sometimes, you know, when, when God makes a command, it's clear. His word is clear. But sometimes when it comes to applying it, it can be difficult. And so we need to understand that. Uh, It will take discipline, holding the tongue, guarding our hearts towards the weaker brother, uh, brother or sister. You know, he says to edify. We aren't to be spiritual termites and destroy the work that God has started in this person. Why does Paul say this? Why does he tell us to bear up with those who are weak in the faith and to build them up, to not please ourselves, but to keep the peace and be careful when it comes to the conscience of others? Well, as one said, it's because the, the strong are tempted to crush the weak, right? As Paul says, 
to destroy earlier in chapter 14. As the strong can say or have the attitude sometimes, I have this liberty, I have my rights, God will be pleased if I do this, so I'm going to partake of this and I'm going to give glory to God and do it right in front of this person, even though they are struggling as I do it. Maybe it's a type of music or something like that. Well, Paul's attitude in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 22, he said, To the weak I became as weak that I might win the weak. I become all things to all men that I might by all means save some. Now, Paul is not saying there that he sinned or became sinful or anything like that so that he could win other Christians. No, but he's saying that he was careful how he acted and behaved before others. He didn't want to put a stumbling block before others so that they wouldn't come to Christ and grow in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as we looked at this last time, we said, well, this sounds an awful lot like Jesus, doesn't it? In the incarnation, as Paul talks about in Philippians 2, we looked at that where Paul says to the divided congregation at Philippi, he tells them in Philippians 2 verse 4, let each of you look out not, for his, not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking upon the form of a bondservant. And so Christ did not say, well, I'm God, I don't have to go down there. Heavenly Father, that's great, but uh, find someone else. No. Jesus the Son submitted to the will of his heavenly Father gladly and took upon himself human flesh. And so we talk about the humiliation of Christ. And why did he do it? Because of the needs of others. Sinners. That's why he did it. And so as we think about Christ here, that leads us to the second thing in our text in verses 3 and 4. Paul presents the example of Christ himself to us. Verse 3, he says, For even Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Um, Christ, we've already seen, he, he did not please himself in the incarnation. And when it came to his life, his life was the life of the cross. For whom did Christ lay down his life? His brethren. And if you want to be his disciple, what does he say to us? He says, if you, any man wants to come after me, let him take his what? Cross. Let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. To be a Christian is to have a life of self-sacrifice, to deny self for the sake of others. And we see that in the person and work of our Lord Jesus. But note there in verse 4, I think it is, Paul says, For whatever things were written, were written for our learning, that we, through the patience and comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope. And so he presents to us the example of Christ, and you can see there in verse 3, midway through the end, he quotes from Psalm 69, verse 9, and then in verse 4, he says, look, whatever things were written before in the Old Testament, 
They were written, he says, for our learning, that we through the patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. And so if you've grown up in a church that kind of um, makes little of the Old Testament, we'll put it that way, you see here that Paul uses the Old Testament to prove New Testament doctrine and practice, right? He refers to the authority of Scripture. He's an apostle. He appeals to the Scriptures. In 2 Timothy 3.16, he says that all Scripture is inspired by God and that all Scripture is profitable for doctrine, teaching, training in righteousness, and so forth. And so we are reminded of that, and we see here as well the use of the Scriptures. He talks about our learning. He talks about patience and comfort, which come from the Scriptures, hope that might come from the Scriptures. And so I just want to ask you today, are you lacking patience? Are you lacking comfort? Are you lacking hope? From where does that come? The Scriptures. Are you reading the Scriptures? Are you in the Word of God daily? Do you see it as manna come down from heaven to feed your soul and instruct you in the way of life as we see here? But in addition to that, we need to have a correct understanding and interpretation of Scripture, right? can't just take it out of context and treat it like a fortune cookie, you know, like the wheel of fortune or whatever. Um, although Augustine, oddly enough, okay, he, you know, fifth century church father, he became a Christian by just kind of randomly flipping to Romans chapter 14, and he read a verse, and it really, it wasn't in context, but the Lord used that to convert him, but he already had this knowledge of the gospel and so forth. But anyway, point is, we need not to take Scripture out of context. You know, the three things about real estate, location, location, location. Same applies to Scripture. Location, location, location. Look at it in its immediate context, in its broader context, and in the whole context of Scripture. Scripture interprets Scripture. So anyway, Paul quotes Psalm 69 in verse 9. And in Psalm 69, as we see here, um, although the psalmist is writing the psalm about his life situation, ultimately it's about the work of Christ. It's a messianic psalm especially a messianic psalm, perhaps I should put it that way. And so he says there in that context that the reproach of his enemies have fallen upon him. Some of those enemies were his own brethren. And why did this happen? Well, in Psalm 69 and verse 9, he tells us, which is verse 3 of our text this morning, because the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Christ suffered because he sought to obey his heavenly Father. Because he did obey his heavenly Father. And those who attacked Christ were attacking his Father. Jesus says as much in the Gospels. And by the way, he tells his disciples, don't, don't, don't be surprised when they come after you and hurl all kinds of insults and persecute you because they did so to me before you. And so what is the point here? Why is Paul referring us to this? Well, as I, I understand it is, it is to show that Christ 
was willing to bear the insults of others and to show that he was not seeking his own pleasure and that he was willing to endure that. Why? For the sake of others. Talk about a selfless person. 1 Peter 2 talks about this as well. We've seen that in weeks past. And why did Christ bear these things? He did it in order to win them, to teach them, and to lead them. Remember that prayer in the garden, Matthew 26 and verse 39. He prayed to the Father. He said, if at all possible, let this cup pass from me, the cup of God's wrath. And he said, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And it was the will of the Father that he did suffer, that he would suffer for the sake of the people that the Father would give to him. His church, the Christian, you and me, who trust in him. And so we have seen that Christ himself is our example as, uh, for self-denial, for the advancement of of the brethren, and in this case, the weaker brother or sister. And so then let me ask you a question. Are we so selfish that we are willing to exercise our rights when doing so will bring division in the body? Christ didn't do that. Neither should we. And then the last thing we see here is the desired outcome on the part of the apostle. That's found in verses 5 through 7. So what is Paul's desired outcome? It's the glory of God. The glory of God. Notice there in verse 5, Now may the God of patience and comfort, he says, grant you to be like-minded toward one another. There's, there's discussion as to whether or not this is a prayer of Paul or if he's just stating his desire. And I'm just going to say yes. Obviously, it's his desire. And I can't help but believe that Paul prayed this way for these people in this situation. He says in verse 5, May the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded. Like-minded. Note that God must do this work of unifying the body of Christ. Now, God ordinarily uses means. He uses the gospel. He uses the means of his word. He uses the means of prayer. But ultimately, God himself, and here the Father, must grant and give this unity. May God grant you to be like-minded towards one another. In the book of Acts, there's that phrase, one accord. I know there's a joke about a car. It's not talking about a Honda. It's talking about them being unified in the faith, in mind, in attitude, in purpose. In Acts 16, or rather, it's Acts chapter 2, I think it says they were all in one accord, in agreement. And so God does this work. I mean, this is the work of especially the Holy Spirit, right? Ezekiel 36 talks about the new heart, the new spirit that uh, Christians receive from God. And John 3, 5, Jesus said, 
Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of the water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And I love what it says in Acts chapter 16 and verse 14. I can remember as a new Christian just beginning to scratch the surface to understand the sovereignty of God and salvation that, you know, as John put it in 1 John, I love Jesus, I love Him, we love Him. Why? Because He first loved us. In Acts chapter 16 and verse 14, it says this, Now a certain woman named Lydia heard us, the apostles, and those with them. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira who worshipped God. She was a God worshiper. Then it says this, Luke tells us this, The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. And I could say, the only reason Lydia received Jesus as he is offered in the gospel, that gospel preached by Paul, is because the Lord himself opened her heart. God must grant these things. He must give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and a heart to receive the gospel and the truth of his word. And so Paul says, may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward one another. In other words, do you see where he's going with this? Don't stay down here if you're weak. And if you're up here and you're, you're strong, don't leave the weak behind. No, but may it equal out and balance out. You come together. Believe the same thing. And by the way, this is not a call to uniformity. It's a call to unity. He's not saying everybody look the same. All you ladies have the same haircut, wear the same clothing, talk the same way, dress the same. No. There is a sense in which we all are individuals. It's, it goes back to that whole thing, the one and the many. We're different. We're all, what we all share as humans is the image of God in us. We're different from all the other creatures. So we're not mere animals. We are humans bearing the image of God, although marred by the fall. But as Christians, we also have the Holy Spirit. Christ has died for us. We have the common bond of the Spirit, the common bond of love. And so we are to have a unity among us as Christians. And so we are called to this maturity. Paul calls it maturity, a mature man in Ephesians 4. But I wonder when he talks about granting this, if we sometimes forget it. We forget that God must do the work. We forget that the Spirit must make a person born again. You don't do that yourself. I've seen a book entitled, How to Be Born Again. Well, I can answer that real quickly. John chapter 3 says God does it, not you. God does it. God does the work. He uses means, no doubt. But let us not forget it. By the way, let me just say, if, if perhaps when it comes to some issue, it's possible, maybe it's a long shot, but it's possible you're the weaker brother or sister. Is God doing a work in your heart? Has God shown you what it is through his word or through his word, through the words of another Christian? And is he dealing with you and are you, sub are you submitting to his word? That's the flip side, right? 
of what's going on. So notice what Paul says, verse um, 6, that you may with one mind and one mouth glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So there it is. Here's his desired outcome, uh, probably the end uh, for which he prays that the Christians, all of them, with the same mind and mouth glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. One body, one man. That's the image, glorifying God. No doubt this was to happen in the body life within the church. We talk about body life today. In Acts 2.46, we're told, So continuing daily with one accord, one mind, in the temple, breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. And this is the instruction of our Savior, isn't it? John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. The people look at us Christians and say, They are disciples. They have something there. They really love one another. They aren't all the same. They all don't talk the same way, but man, some of them have tattoos. Some of them don't. Some of them like classical music. Some of them like, I don't know, Christian hip-hop. But they love one another. And that book unites them. That gospel unites them. Well, this is to happen in worship, too. I just came across this list. This is, just listen to this. Second Chronicles 5, 13 and 14. It says, Indeed, it came to pass when the trumpeters and the singers were as one in worship in the temple way back then, to make one sound to be heard in, to be heard in praising and thanking the Lord. And when they lifted up their voice, with the trumpets and the cymbals and instruments of music, and praise the Lord, saying, For He is good, for His mercy endures forever. That's a psalm. That the house, the house of the Lord, was filled with the cloud, so that the priests could not continue ministering because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house. We don't live in the days of the temple. We don't offer sacrifices that they offered. We offer the sacrifices of praise. But may we at Providence be so united in body, life, in spirit, that when we come together to worship, that it were as though the Lord descended upon us, not in a physical cloud, but by His Spirit, He would be happy to receive that worship and accept our praise. May the glory of the Lord fall upon us. And I'm not talking about crazy stuff going on. I'm talking about changed hearts and lives. Taking blasphemers, changing them into those who praise the living God with their tongues. And so there's this summary then in verse 7. Therefore receive one another just as Christ also received us to the glory of God. He goes back to Christ and His example. And he says, receive one another, okay? If you're weak, if you're strong, 
Come together. Receive one another. Okay, how? Just a little bit? Just to bear it? Just, just enough to say I did it? No. He says, receive one another just as Christ received us. Just as Christ received us to the same degree, inasmuch, even as, in the same way. So then the question becomes, how did Christ receive us? Did he wait till we were perfect? Did he wait till we agreed with everything that he said? Nope. He came down from heaven in his grace, in his mercy. He pursued us, the good shepherd, for the wayward sheep. After his resurrection, the Lord Jesus, there he is. There's the road to Emmaus in Luke 24. Two of his disciples are walking along and and they're despondent. They're like, you know, we thought he was the one. And now there's nothing. He's not even in his tomb. And so Jesus comes from nowhere, pulls up beside him, as it were, walks beside them. And Luke tells us this, that he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. They were slow to believe God's word. And yet, who is Jesus with? Those who are slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. What a merciful Savior He is. Think about Peter. You know, Peter, um, he would have his moments. He made that great confession, but told you this before I identify with Peter, more so than Paul. Um, Peter is the one who looked at his circumstances while he was walking on water. He took his eyes off Jesus and he became, well, he sank in despair. It was Peter who suggested to Jesus, you don't need to go to the cross. And it was Jesus in the garden while Jesus was being arrested that he wielded his, his sword, and when he's hacking ears off of soldiers, Jesus had to go over there, put, put it back on. Okay, let me go, Peter. And yet, as John 13, 1 says about Jesus, he loved them to the end. To the end. And beloved, Isn't it the same with us? How how does your walk with the Lord go this week? Did you sin yesterday, last week? And yet is Christ still your Savior? Does He still hold you by the hand from which no one can snatch you? Of course, He is patient. He bears with us day by day. Even in our ignorance and our stubbornness, He's there interceding at the right hand of the Father. And He's given us His Spirit. He leads us, He teaches us, and He receives us still in spite of these things. And so He says, just as also Christ received us to the glory of God. When we do this, We glorify God. And so the question is, beloved, 
dear Christian, are you receiving that one who rubs you the wrong way? That Christian. Are you receiving that Christian who believes a little differently than you? Maybe you don't know about him or her. But when it comes to the basics, they're right on. They don't see things the way you see them. You're both Christians. You have the same Savior. You have the same Heavenly Father. You're members of the same body. You make the same confession of faith. Therefore, by the Spirit, you are united to one another. So receive Him. Receive her. Do not shame or judge or condemn or, as Paul says, destroy that one. You see, we have been accepted in the Beloved by our Lord Jesus Christ. We all are works in progress. We have not yet reached the church triumphant. We have not yet reached that company of saints made perfect. And until we do, we have each other. And we are being conformed unto the image of Christ. Christ. There's, there's this old saying, I've been hesitant to use it this whole time. We've been in Romans 14. I'm going to use it. I'm going to remind you of it with qualification that you be careful if you ever use it because it can be twisted. But in this sense, it's, it's correct. I think it was uh, a German reformer who actually coined the phrase, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, Liberty in all things, charity, love, right? Because he says there in verse 7, receive one another just as Christ also received us to the glory of God. Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we, we are overwhelmed by the fact that and while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We who were at war with you are the very subjects of your redemption, your forgiveness, and your salvation through the Lord Jesus by which we are made one with you. And so we pray, Father, help us to become one even more so with one another. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen.